Section One of Pantrophian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pantrophian by Alexis Sawyer. Agriculture. Every nation has attributed the origin of agriculture to some beneficent deity. The Egyptians bestowed this honor on Osiris the greeks on ceres and triptolemus the latins on saturn or on their king janus whom in gratitude they placed among the gods all nations however agree that whoever introduced among them this happy and beneficial discovery has been most useful to man by elevating his mind to a state of sociability and civilization many learned men have made laborious researches in order to discover not only the name of the inventor of agriculture but the country and the century in which he lived some however have failed in their inquiry but why because they have forgotten in their investigation the only book which could give them positive information on the birth of society and the first development of human industry we read in the book of genesis that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And after having related his fatal disobedience, the sacred historian adds, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Would it be possible to adduce a more ancient and sublime authority? If it be asked why we take Moses as our guide, instead of dating the origin of human society from those remote periods which are lost in the night of ages, we invoke one of the most worthy masters of human science, the illustrious Cuvier, who says, quote, No Western nation can produce an uninterrupted chronology of more than 3,000 years. Not one of them has any record of connected facts which bears the stamp of probability anterior to that time, nor even for two or three centuries after. The Greeks acknowledge that they learned the art of writing from the Phoenicians thirty or thirty-four centuries ago, and for a long time after that period their history is filled with fables in which they only go back three hundred years to establish the cradle of their existence as a nation. Of the history of Western Asia, we have only a few contradictory extracts which embrace, in an unconnected form, about twenty centuries. The first profane historian with whom we are acquainted by works extant is Herodotus, and his antiquity does not reach two thousand three hundred years. The historians consulted by him had written less than a century previous and we are enabled to judge what kind of historians they were by the extravagances handed down to us as extracts from Aristeus, Proconesus, and some others. Before them they had only poets, and Homer, the master and eternal model of the West, lived only 2,700 or 2,800 years ago. One single nation has transmitted to us annals written in prose before the time of cyrus it is the jewish nation that part of the old testament called the pentateuch has existed in its present form at least ever since the schism of jeroboam as the samaritans received it equally with the jews that is to say 
that it has assuredly existed more than 2,800 years. There is no reason for not attributing the book of Genesis to Moses, which would carry us back 500 years more, or 33 centuries, and it is only necessary to read it in order to perceive that it is, in part, a compilation of fragments from antecedent works. Wherefore, no one can have the least doubt of its being the oldest book now possessed by the Western nations. The descendants of our first parents, and, first of all, the Hebrew people, who, as a nation historically considered, must occupy our foremost attention, devoted all their energy to agricultural labour. The chief of the tribe of Judah, as well as the youngest son of the tribe of Benjamin, followed the plough, and gathered corn in the fields. Gideon was thrashing and winnowing his corn, when an angel revealed to him that he should be the deliverer of Israel. Ruth was gleaning when Boaz saw her for the first time. King Saul was driving his team of oxen in the ploughed field, when some of his court came and apprised him that the city of Jabesh was in danger and Elisha was called away to prophesy, while at work with one of his father's ploughs. We could multiply these incidents without end, to prove what extraordinary interest the Jews took in agricultural occupations. Moses regarded agriculture as the first of all arts, and he enjoined the Hebrews to apply themselves to it, in preference to any other. It was to the free and pure air of the fields, to the strengthening, healthy, and laborious country life that he called their first attention. The sages of Greece and Rome held the same opinion. In those republics, the tradesman was but an obscure individual, while the tiller of the soil was considered as a distinguished citizen. The urban tribes yielded precedence to the rustics, and this latter class supplied the nation with its generals and its magistrates. Our present ideas on this point have materially changed with the times, and our modern Cincinnati very seldom return to the field to terminate the furrow they have commenced. The Israelites did not possess this excessive delicacy. They preserved the taste for agriculture with which their great legislator, Moses, had inspired them, and which the distribution of land naturally tended to strengthen. No one, in fact, was allowed to possess enough ground to tempt him to neglect the smallest portion, nor had any one the right to dispossess the Hebrew of his father's field. Even he himself was forbidden to alienate for ever land from his family. This wise disposition did not escape the notice of an ancient heathen author, and various states of Greece adopted the same plan. Amongst others, the Locrians, Athenians, and Spartans, who did not allow their father's inheritance to be sold. The plan which we have adopted for our guidance in this work hardly justifies us in casting more than a glance at the Mosaic legislation. We shall, therefore, pass over all those prescriptions, all those memorable prohibitions, which the reader must have so often admired in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and content ourselves with observing that Moses knew how to find in agriculture an infallible means of developing the industry of his people, and that by imposing the necessity of giving rest to the land every seventh year, he obliged them by the generality of this repose to have stores in reserve, and consequently to employ every means of preserving portions of the grain, fruit, wines, and oil which they had gathered in the course of the six years preceding.
Ancient casuists of this nation enter into the most minute details on tillage and sowing, and also on the gathering of olives, on the tithes which were paid to the priests, and the portion set aside for the poor. They also mention some species of excellent wheat, barley, rice, figs, dates, etc., which were gathered in Judea. The soil of this delicious country was astonishingly fertile. The operation tillage was easy, and the cattle here supplied a greater abundance of milk than anywhere else. We will just remark that even the names of several localities indicate some of these advantages. For instance, Caponeum signified a beautiful country town, Genesareth, the garden of the groves, Bethsaida, the house of plenty. Nam was indebted for its sweet name to the beauty of the situation, and Magdala, on the borders of the Sea of Galilee, to its site and the happy life of its inhabitants. Next to the Hebrews in agriculture came the Egyptians, a strange and fantastical people, who raised the imperishable pyramids, the statue of Memon, and the lighthouse of Alexandria, and yet who prayed religiously every morning to their goddess, a radish, or their gods, leek and onion. Whatever they may be of folly and rare industry in this mixture, we cannot but agree that the art of agriculture was very ancient in Egypt, as the father of the faithful, Abraham, retired into that country at a time of famine and later the sons of Jacob went there also to purchase corn. We know that the Romans called this province the granary of the empire, and that they drew from it every year twenty million bushels of corn. If we are to believe the Egyptians, Osiris, son of Jupiter, and hence a demigod of good family, taught them the art of tilling the ground by aid of the plough. The instrument, we may easily believe, was much less complicated than ours of the present day, there is no doubt that in the beginning, and for a great length of time afterwards, it was nothing but a long piece of wood without joint, and bent in such manner that one end went into the ground, whilst the other served to yoke the oxen, for it was always these animals which drew the plough, although Homer seems to give the preference to mules. The Greeks, clever imitators of the Egyptians, pretended that Ceres taught them the art of sowing, reaping, and grinding corn. They made her goddess of harvest, and applied themselves to the labour of agriculture with that rare and persevering ability which always characterised these people, and consequently was often the cause of many things being attributed to them which they only borrowed from other nations. The Romans, future rulers of the world, understood from the first that the earth claimed their nursing care and Romulus instituted an order of priesthood for no other object than the advancement of this useful art. It was composed of the twelve sons of his nurse, all invested with sacerdotal character, who were commanded to offer to heaven vows and sacrifices in order to obtain an abundant harvest. They were called Avales brothers. One of them dying, the king took his place and continued to fulfil his duty for the rest of his life. In the palmy days of the Republic, the conquerors of the universe passed from the army or the senate to their fields. Serenus was sowing when called to command the Roman troops, and Quintus Cincinnatus was ploughing when a deputation came and informed him that he was appointed dictator. Everything in the conduct of the Romans gives evidence of their great veneration for agriculture. They called the rich 
locupletes, that is, persons who were possessors of a farm or country seat, locus. Their first money was stamped with a sheep or an ox, the symbol of abundance. They called it pecunia from pecus, flock. The public treasure was designated pascua because the Roman domain consisted at the beginning only of pasturage. After the taking of Carthage, the books of the libraries were distributed to the allied princes of the Republic, but the Senate reserved the twenty-eight books of Mago on agriculture. We shall briefly point out the principal process of this art in use among the Greek and Romans, or at least those which appear to us most deserving of interest. Like us, the ancients divided the land in furrows, whose legal length, if we may so term it, was one hundred and thirty feet. Oxen were never allowed to stop while tracing a furrow, but on arriving at the end they rested a short time, and when their task was over they were cleaned with the greatest care, and their mouths washed with wine. The ground being well prepared and fit to receive the seed, the grain was spread on the even surface of the furrows and then covered over. The primitive plough, already mentioned, was of extreme simplicity. It had no wheels, but was merely furnished with a handle to enable the ploughman to direct it according to his judgment. Neither was there any iron or other metal in its construction. They afterwards made a plough of two pieces, one of a certain length to put the oxen to, and the other was shorter to go in the ground. It was similar in shape to an anchor. Such was the style of plough which the Greeks used. They also very often employed a sort of fork, with three or four prongs, for the same purpose. Pliny gives credit to the Gauls for the invention of the plough mounted on wheels. The Anglo-Norman plough has no wheels. The ploughman guided it with one hand, and carried a stick in the other to break the clods. The Greeks and Romans had not, perhaps, the celebrated guano of our days, though we would not positively assert it but they knew of a great variety of manures, all well adapted to the various soils they wished to improve. Sometimes they made use of marl, a sort of fat clay, and frequently manure from pigeons, blackbirds, and thrushes, which were fattened in aviaries for the benefit of Roman epicures. Certain plants, they thought, required a light layer of ashes, which they obtained from roots and brushwood. Others succeeded best, according to their dictum, on land where sheep, goats, etc., had grazed for a long time. When the harvest season arrived, they joyfully prepared to cut the corn, with instruments varying in form according to the locality or the fancy of the master. In one place they adopted the plain sickle, in another that with teeth. Sometimes they mowed the corn, as they did the meadows, with a scythe, or else they plucked off the ears with a kind of fork, armed with five teeth. A short time after the harvest, the operation of thrashing generally began. Heavy chariots, armed with pointed teeth, crushed the ears. Varro calls this machine the Carthaginian chariot. Strabo asserts that the ancient Britons carried the corn into a large covered area, or barn, where they thrashed it, adding that, without this precaution, the rain and damp would have spoiled the grain. At all events, this kind of thrashing in barns with flails and sticks was not unknown to other countries. Pliny speaks of it, and Columella describes it. 
we may add that the egyptians were also very probably acquainted with this method since the jews who had submitted to their power employed it themselves when the corn had been thrashed winnowed and put into baskets very similar to our own of the present day they immediately studied the best means of preserving it some preferred granaries exposed to a mild temperature others had extensive edifices with thick brick walls without openings except one hole only in the roof to admit light and air the spaniards africans and cappadocians dug deep ditches from which they excluded all moisture they covered the bottom and lined the sides with straw then put in the grain and covered it up the ancients were of opinion that corn in the ear could by this means be preserved a great number of years if it is desirable to keep corn for any length of time choose the finest and best grown after having worked it make a pile as high as the ceiling will permit cover with a layer of quicklime powdered of about three inches thick then with a watering pot moisten this lime which forms a crust with the corn the outside seeds bud and shoot forth a stalk which perishes in winter this stalk is only to be touched when necessity requires it at sedan a warehouse has been seen hewed out of the rock and tolerably damp in which there had been a considerable pile of corn for the last hundred and ten years it was covered with a crust a foot thick on which persons might walk without bending or breaking it in the slightest degree marshal vauban proposed eating corn in soup without being ground it was boiled during two or three hours in water and when the grains had burst a little salt butter or milk was added this food is very nice not unwholesome and might be employed when flour is scarce heated or half rotten Dutour. the chinese instituted a ceremony which had for its base to honour the profession of agriculture every year at the time of ploughing the fields the emperor with all his court paid a visit to his country residence near pekin and then marked out several furrows with his plough in seventeen ninety three the national convention of france instituted a similar fete and the president of the local administration of his county was to mark out a furrow in eighteen forty eight a grand republican procession took place through paris to the champ de mars wherein agriculture played a prominent part the first treatise on agriculture was printed in fifteen thirty eight and its importance has been so much felt from that period that there are now in france more than one hundred and twenty societies of agriculture who distribute prizes to encourage discoveries for the improvement of this science we have in our days the royal agricultural society of england which also awards prizes and through such institutions all information can be obtained on the successive progresses we have made in that indispensable art which may be said to have arrived to such a degree of perfection that future generations may find some difficulty in improving upon it one great evidence of which is the immense number of samples of agricultural produce machines and implements of husbandry which great and the glorious exhibition of eighteen fifty one has ushered to the world previous to the arrival of the romans the ancient britons paid but little attention to agriculture their intestine discords left them scarcely any leisure to cultivate their fields 
or apply themselves to the improvement of an art which flourishes only in peaceful times they reared a great number of cattle but their chief corn was barley of which they made their favourite drink they put the grains in the ear into barns and beat it out as they wanted it those inhabitants of the island who were the least civilised subsisted solely on milk and the flesh of animals which they had learned to master by their skill but the people of this nation for which heaven had in reserve such a brilliant destiny knew how to endure hunger cold and fatigue without a murmur a briton passed entire days immersed to the neck in the stagnant waters of a marsh a few roots sufficed for his nourishment and if we are to believe dio his frugal habits enabled him to appease the craving of his stomach with an aliment composed of ingredients no longer known and of which he took each time at long intervals a quantity not exceeding in size that of a bean let us add that the art of gardening was known rather early in great britain and that marl was employed to manure the land the anglo-saxons employed themselves diligently in the cultivation of the soil they established farms sowed grain and reared cattle the fleece of their sheep furnished them with precious wool which they spun and then converted into sumptuous clothing strutt gives us a curious detail of rural occupations at that epoch we will cite the original text Quote, january exhibits the husbandman in the fields at plough while his attendant diligently following is sowing the grain february the grain being put into the earth the next care was to prune their trees crop their vines and place them in order march then we follow them into the garden where the industrious labourer is digging up the ground and sowing the vegetables for the ensuing season april now taking leave of the laborious husbandman we see the nobleman regaling with his friends and passing the pleasant month in carousings banquetings and music may brings the lord into the field to examine his flock and superintend the shearing of the sheep june with this month comes the gladstone time of harvest here are some cutting down the corn while it is by others bound up in sheaves and laid into the carts to be conveyed to the barns and granaries in the meantime they are spirited up to their labours by the shrill sound of the enlivening horn july we find them employed in lopping the trees and felling of timber etc august in this month they cut down the barley with which they made their old and best beloved drink ale september here we find the lord attended by his huntsmen pursuing and chasing the wild boars in the woods and forests october and here he is amusing himself with the exercise of that old and noble pastime hawking november this month returns us again to the labourers who are here heating and preparing their utensils december in this last month we find them thrashing out the grain while some winnow or rather sift it to free it from the chaff and others carry it out in large baskets to the granaries in the meantime the steward keeps on account of the quantity by means of an indented or notched stick End quote. agriculture was always protected with paternal solicitude by a prince whose name will ever remind us of the sanguinary day of saint bartholomew here is a textual passage from the edict issued by charles the ninth the eighteenth of october fifteen seventy one 
quote, we have commanded and ordained and do hereby command and ordain that no man engaged in the cultivation of land by himself his servants and his families with intent to raise grain and fruit necessary for the sustenance of men and beasts shall be liable to the process of execution for debt nor on any account whatsoever neither in his own person nor his bed horses mares mules asses oxen cows pigs goats sheep poultry ploughs carts wagons harrows barrows nor any other species or kind of cattle or goods serving in the said tillage and occupation the said husbandmen being under such protection and safeguard seeing that we have so placed them and do place them by these presents End of section one